If you're able, uh, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This reading is going to be from Romans 8:28 to 30. For we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn of a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. My name is Shane Hughes. Uh, If you are new to this place or uh, visiting for the first time, we are glad that you are here, whether you're with us here in this room or online. We're good to have you. It's good to have you. We're going through this series on Romans 8 called The Heart of the Gospel. And sometimes when we talk about the heart of the gospel, what we're talking about is the passion of the gospel. But today, we're going to talk more about the center of the gospel, the core of the gospel. We're going to be talking about Christian joy, which is something that I wrestle with. I'm going to be frank with you. Um, Joy is something that I, I struggle with in my life. It's like, it's the fruit of the Spirit that I feel like sometimes I bear the least. It's so easy for me uh, to feel despondent. It's easy for me to feel discouraged. Um, I don't think things are going to turn out well. And people say, you're just a pessimist. I say, I'm just looking at reality. Um, But it never quite works out as poorly as I think it does. But what I want to argue today, the thesis I want to make, is that Christianity is fundamentally different than any other system of thought, any other sort of spiritual uh, path, any other sort of religion. Christianity is fundamentally different, and the reason it is, is because of Christian joy. Which, by the way, is not the same thing as being happy. It's not the same thing as being optimistic. But I want you to listen carefully for this next bit. I want you to hear what I'm saying and not more. Sometimes I think you can kind of paint a trajectory of where we're headed and you say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, But right now I want you to hear carefully what I'm saying and and nothing more. Christianity is different than any other sort of world religion, any sort of spiritual pathway, anything else like that. It's it's different fundamentally. Um, Christianity is different than the philosophy of Buddhism. And and some of the most peace-filled people I know are students of Buddhism. And if you know anything about that, uh, that way of life, you know that one of the aspects of that is that the way that you avoid suffering is that you kind of disentangle yourself. The way that you avoid pain is to avoid suffering. The way you avoid suffering is to avoid attachment. And so if you're not attached to things, then it doesn't hurt as much if those things fall away. And this leads to a path of peacefulness, as far as I can tell, at least from people that take it seriously. But I want to contrast that with the way that Jesus, that Jesus takes a fundamentally different path in the understanding of how to deal with suffering. That what Jesus does is goes from heaven and embraces the world, becomes flesh, becomes incarnate with all of the joy that you experience and with all of the suffering. In fact, Jesus' life takes you on an arc of how do you deal with disappointment and suffering. Christianity is different than the philosophy of Buddhism. Because we embrace the world. Christianity is also different than the religion of Islam. Uh, Fundamentally, at the core of Islam is a call to obedience. 
And that call to obedience is not only, it's remarkable and it's commendable. And some of my Muslim friends, I found them to be some of the most ethical and compassionate people to others. They do a phenomenal job at that. But the call is to obedience. And the difference between Christianity and Islam is that God doesn't call you to obedience. God calls you to adoption. And as we talked about last week, adoption is fundamentally different than to be obedient like a slave is to the master. When you are adopted into the family, all of your debts are wiped clean. And as in Romans 8 begins, because we are adopted, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have been brought into a new reality, and that reality is, is that now you're a part of a new family, and you're joint heirs with Christ. And you benefit from the Spirit translating our prayers from our best effort to God's best action. And you get to be familiar with God enough. You're invited into the center of the family that you get to call God daddy. There is an intimacy there. And I think it's those two things taken together. The call to engage the world with all of its suffering, despite the pain, we fully embrace the world, and the knowledge that you have been adopted as a joint heir with Christ, that unlocks, that realizes, that gets to the core of what the gospel is, and allows you to have impervious joy. Joy that doesn't spill, joy that doesn't fade, joy that doesn't spoil, joy that doesn't just kind of wear out. And so if you have your Bible, open up to Romans chapter 8, because that's where we're going to be today. But before we jump into the Word, let's pray. Father God, the, the words of the songs we've sang this morning have lifted my heart. It has taken my soul someplace near to the throne room of God. And I'm grateful that we could gather around your table and remember and experience your son Jesus all over again. The one that gives us life, the one that brings us the words of life. Where else can we go, Father? And so now, as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. It's together that the church says, amen. I, I struggle with joy and sometimes I wrestle with trying to, to let it flow in and out of my life. But the truth is, is there is a deep joy that the deepest amount of trouble and suffering can't extinguish. It can't put it out. I don't always experience it, but I know because I've seen it. In fact, this is what John, Jesus is talking about in John chapter 16. He says, so with you, he's, he's praying for his disciples because he's about to experience the crucifixion. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take your joy away. I've seen it. I've seen it in, in, a, in a family that's suffering the loss of a loved one and they're sitting around their table and they're remembering stories and they're crying, but in the midst of that moment, in the midst of their grief, there's this thing, it's just this sprig of hope that, that blossoms and all of a sudden everybody begins laughing and, and it turns the story. I've seen it. I've seen joy sitting around a hospital bed as someone who is in suffering and enduring pain is having their hand held by somebody that is loving them. And because of that moment there, there is joy. 
Last week in Romans, what we were talking about was about the, the suffering that the world is going through. The world is groaning, waiting for God to finish the work of restoration. And next week, we're going to see that nothing can separate us from God's love. Famine or nakedness or sword. Nothing will ever be able to take you away from God's love. But in the middle is our reason for joy. It is impervious joy. And there's two ideas in Romans. The first thing is that our bad things turn out for good. And there's a lot of kind of, of, of translations involved in Romans chapter 8. And, and usually we follow the New Revised Standard or you may have an NIV Bible. And, and this is one of those texts that for whatever reason it is difficult to translate. Because you end up putting kind of an interpretive lens into what you think Paul is trying to say. And so literally let me read to you what it says. Literally it says, To those who loving him, God works together all things for good. To those who loving him, God works together all things for good. Part of the reason that you have joy is because bad things turn out for good. But don't jump to the end because we've got to get there together. The first thing that it, this text tells us is that all things happen to Christians. You're not going to be spared. Christian circumstances are not unique. Terrible things are going to happen to you. You are going to experience the whole gamut of human experience of, of your life, of great highs and terrible lows. It's going to happen to you. All the things that happen in this world are going to happen to Christians. We are not exempt from that. We're not excused from that. Kate Bowler has done some fascinating work um, about the only, what she calls the only American heresy. It's the only heresy that, that America has turned out, and, it, and it's, it's called the health and wealth gospel, which is this form of Christianity that says, look, if you follow Christ, you're going to be healthy, you're going to be wealthy, you're going to be wise, you're going to get rich, everything's going to turn out for you, and you're never going to suffer any trouble, which sounds amazing, right? That sounds like a great thing to get on board with, but it's a heresy, it's not true. And most of us that have been following Christ from a well, we'll, we'll tell you the truth, like, that's not how it works out. That's a lie. The truth is somewhere different from that. But even though we would reject that heresy, I think that it kind of creeps in. It's kind of infected kind of the mindset of, of American Christianity, even without us realizing it. In fact, it may only come at one or two points in your life. It may happen like this. When something bad happens, when... When they break up with you, when you get a bad call with bad news from your doctor, when an accident occurs, when you see the, the red and blue lights flashing in your rearview mirror, you, you, for a minute you might have this thought. Tell me if you've not, never had this thought. You may have this thought of saying, something bad happens and you say, wait a minute, I've been good. This shouldn't happen to me. I've been good. I haven't done anything wrong. I've been, I do the best I can. I've been nice to people. I've been good. This shouldn't happen to me. If you've ever had that thought, that is kind of the tendril of the infection of health and wealth gospel influencing your worldview. Because health and wealth will tell you, if you're good, if you're faithful, it's all going to work out for you. This is not the teaching of scripture. You may ascribe it to this without even realizing it. But on the other hand, it is true that when things work out for good, it's the work of God. 
because things don't work out together for good on their own. I mean, last week we talked about this. The cosmos, the universe is enslaved to decay. Things are going to fall apart. The, the, the universe is heading, it's bringing itself physically to entropy. The, the vibration of the universe is slowing down. That's true in terms of physics, but it's also true in terms of everything else. And what this text does is it gives us clear vision about reality. If this gospel gives us anything, it is clarity of thought about the nature of this world. That on its own, it won't work out. On its own, governments don't work out. On their own, they end up heading toward corruption or despotism. They don't work out. Cities on their own won't work out. Churches on their own won't work out. Highland definitely would not have worked out without the presence of God in our midst. I can tell you the truth. I lived it. If anyone ever asks you the question, should you do a pandemic and a major discernment at the same time? The answer is no. You shouldn't do that. We did it anyway, but it happened, right? And if we made a choice about moving one way on masks, you know, we got criticized. If we made a choice about moving the other way on the masks, you know, we got, we got letters. We couldn't make a move without angering or disappointing or frustrating or, or, or somebody leaving. And on our own, it would not have worked out. We should not be here except by the power of God. If Christ gives you anything, it gives you clear vision. You won't work out. Your relationships, they won't work out. If you have someone that cares about you despite what you are, who you are, and what you've done, like that's a, that's a miracle. That's grace. On its own, it, you should never have got here. Your family on your own, it won't work out. I have a friend that uh, lived and he had a, a daughter that he was struggling to parent. And he, and he would say over and over and over, my daughter is either going to end up in the president or in prison. I'm not sure which one, but it's going to be one or the other. Right? That's just like, it's not going to happen. Things don't work out for good on their own. And when two things get together, it makes it worse. But God holds it up. If anything goes well, it's because it's a miracle of grace. And the promise of those who love God is that God is working through every circumstance. That God is, is churning through every circumstance. But we don't avoid the heresy and the lie that says, well, the evidence of me being faithful is that everything's working out for me because that's not true. On the other hand, don't buy into the lie that bad things are not really bad things. They're actually just good things. Right? This is the story of Jesus going to the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus waited to do ministry, and so he was late to get to Lazarus' side, and Lazarus had died. And by the time he gets to the tomb, Lazarus' body has already begun to decay, and the stench is emanating for the tomb. And Scripture tells us that in that moment, Jesus knows what's about to happen. Jesus knows he's about to raise his friend from the dead. Yet Jesus wept. And in that moment, Jesus is frustrated, and Jesus is angry. Jesus is angry at death and decay. He's angry at the fact that things fall apart. Jesus knows what's going to happen, but he feels it anyway. And he does the restoration work anyway. And I think there's this huge temptation in our stories to rush to the end. I know this is going to work out. I've got to be honest with you is that the Bible doesn't say that all clouds have silver linings. 
It doesn't, the Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't say that everything is a blessing in disguise. What the Bible does is tell you the truth is that some things are actually terrible. But God is working in them for those who believe. And for us, God makes all bad things good. The other side of this, the other kind of pit you can fall into if you're not careful, is that God causes all the bad things. God made it happen because God needed to give you, you know, the, the storm so that you could experience the sun, the rainbow, right? That's also not true. It's bad theology. It's a bad way of thinking. For instance, look at the story of Joseph. Now, if you, know, if you don't know the story of Joseph, it's in the Old Testament. Joseph is um, favored by his father, and his brothers all hate him for it. They're so angry about it that they decide to kill him. And one of the brothers says, well, instead of killing him, let's sell him. That way, we, at least we get some money out of the option. And they throw Joseph into a pit waiting for some slavers to come by so they can sell him into slavery. Now, if you know the end of the story of Joseph, then you know that God takes Joseph out of the pit. He goes through a couple of bad experiences. He ends up in prison again, and then he ends up at Pharaoh's house, and he saves the world. God didn't put Joseph in the pit. God didn't put Joseph in the pit so that he could save the world. God didn't put Joseph in that hard circumstance so he could raise Joseph up later. Joseph reflects this at the end of the story. He says, what you intended for evil, God used for good. This is different than God makes all things, to, all things work together for the good who loves who loves God. God works through pain, through suffering. But he didn't cause it. So you might believe this kind of heresy that says the bad things aren't really that bad. No, they're terrible. Honest, be honest. Have clarity of sight. Or that more good things will come to you. That may or may not be true, but you have to have patience for that. In the whole of everything, God will work out everything for good. If Christian joy gives you anything, that kind of invulnerable joy, it gives you clarity so that you won't be shocked when things work out for good. You will see the world with clarity, and that clarity gives you joy. But the key is to have the right kind of timeline. Some of us might be patient enough to give God a week to work this out, or maybe God a month. And if God hasn't worked out in a month, then you're going to give up because obviously God isn't faithful. God's concern is setting the kingdom, the restoration of the cosmos. And so we, part of our life is to have faith that what God is going to do, God will achieve. God is going to turn your all bad things into good things in God's time. And there are better things for you. And I love that kind of optimism. That's great. But that's not the promise that keeps joy. There are stories that won't end with happy endings as far as you can see. But that doesn't mean that God is done. God keeps working. The other side of this promise that gives us joy is that good things are set forever. This is the next verse in the text. And this is one of those texts that when you slap it on uh, kind of a, a bumper sticker or a mug, it sounds different in context, right? Like God works through all things for those who love him that are good, good do his good purpose. It's kind of like Matthew 4, 9. 
Um, I love that one, and I, I want to put that one as a bumper sticker on my car one day. It says, quote, all this I will give you if you bow down and worship me, which sounds great. Like, that's a really comforting text. That deserves to be on a t-shirt until you realize the context of it. Now, I'm not going to tell you what that is. You can look it up when you go home. Matthew 4, 9. You have to read text in context. Hear this word. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn of a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Tim Keller has an interesting commentary on this. He says, he doesn't promise, God doesn't promise better life circumstances. He promises a better life. God doesn't promise better life circumstances. He promises a better life. If you look at the point at which Paul is writing this letter to the Roman church and the situation that the Roman church is going to, they're not rosy. They're not grand. In fact, after this, Paul writes this letter, he is going to be beaten and he's going to be imprisoned and he's going to be shipwrecked and then he's going to be put in jail where he will eventually be killed in Rome. Paul is going to lose all of the good life circumstances that he had before this moment. Another way to think about this is that Jesus didn't suffer so that you will not suffer. Jesus, but that when you suffer, you will become more like him. Jesus didn't suffer so that you will not suffer, but when you suffer, you will become more like him. The promise isn't for better life circumstances. The temptation is to say like, well, you know, I didn't get into the grad school that I wanted, so I know that God has a better grad school for me, or it didn't work out with this particular person, so I know that God has a better mate for me, or it didn't, you can, you can see how that would play out, right? I'm not sure that the promise is for better life circumstances, but he promises you a better life. And that's why here at Highland, we're careful about our stories, It's so easy to jump to the end and assume that better life circumstance is going to be the result. This isn't a a talk show. This isn't Oprah. This is, boy, she's been gone for a while. Um, This is about what it means to be faithful in the face of uncertain futures. And it's impossible not to notice how uh, Paul brings out the idea of predestination here. And I want to be careful about how you read that that word because it seems to jump out. That word seems to to speak in bold to us sometimes. Uh, And I I think, honestly, there's better text to have a a more thorough discussion about what does it mean about predestination and free will and all of those questions. And the reason that's true is because what begins in Scripture takes root and then travels through the Christian tradition. And, and it begins to mean something more than what Paul is talking about when he's talking to these churches in Rome that are undergoing suffering and they're trying to figure out how do Jews and Gentiles live and work together and how does the nature of God's grace transform what happens in our lives. Because later on, Augustine is going to take this text and he's trying to fend off one side of Christianity from this guy named Pelagius. And then Calvin's going to take it and he's wondering at the the beauty and the awesome power of God. And then Beza is going to take that and go somewhere else. And Origen came before both of them. And he's just wondering about the nature of a loving God. And if you don't know any of those names or what I've just talked about, it's, it's not the prime importance. It doesn't completely matter. But what does is this, and this is from Sarah Lancaster. There's this idea of election. 
and it exists in the, in the Hebrew Bible. When, when Paul is writing this book, he's thinking about the scripture that has formed him since his birth. The, the idea that there has been election, that God chooses some things for a purpose. And God made a covenant with Israel and choosing these people to be the people of God and electing them for the purpose of being light to the nations to show everyone else who God is. And Hebrew scripture is filled with the idea that the God is Lord of history. Not only because of this election, but also because of God's foreknowledge of events as made known to the people through the prophets. But the bottom line when we get to Romans chapter 8 about the questions of predestination and God's call is that what God begins, God completes. That what God starts, God will finish. And we all kind of get swept up into that story. We get swept up into the, the story of the kingdom of God. And most of us like to live our lives like we're the hero of the story, that, that we're the, the most important person in the story. That's not how scripture works. That's not how the kingdom works, is that you kind of get swept up along with it. That the promise for your happy ending is, is much more rooted in the promise of God getting what God wants than you having benefited life circumstance. The good news, the root of the core of the gospel is here. Is that God is somehow going to restore every bad thing that's ever happened to you and make it good. Just like Joseph. Just like Paul. Just like Jesus. And that the good things that God has given you are set forever. And nothing can take that from you. Next week, we're going to hear that the things that cannot separate you from the love of God are things like famine, persecution, darkness, sword. It seems to make my life pale in circumstance and in comparison. God will finish God's plan. And the reason that you can have this kind of joy is that God has kind of called you to be swept up in it, to be a part of that big story, to be part of the adventure of God's big love for this God's universe. Will you please stand for our benediction? Our prayer team is going to be available to you. They'd be happy to talk with you about anything. If it's a prayer that you need right here after service, they're going to be here uh, up at the front of the auditorium. If it's coffee that you need later on uh, this week, they would be happy to meet with you. You can meet with any of our shepherds, our elders. They would be pleased for that. Hear this as you go out for this week. God has set the good in your life in an eternal frame. You will, be never, you will never be separated from God's love. Nothing you can do can pull you from God's love. And all of the hard stories and all of the dark stories and all of the difficult circumstance, everything that anyone has gone through in this world, given the arc of God's timeline and the wisdom in God's power, will all be set right one day. So go out this week and courage Go out this week with purpose and know that you are the sons and daughters of God. You're dismissed.